Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Welcome to another episode of No Script, No Problem on Believe, the number one podcast network for professionals. Do you believe? I'm your host, Steve Berkowitz. If you enjoy No Script, No Problem, please remember to subscribe and rate the show. It's available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean, TuneIn, pretty much anywhere you can listen to podcasts. It's also on Believe.com and at Believe Podcast. Follow me on Threads, Blue Sky, Twitter, Post, Instagram, Facebook, pretty much every social media platform you can think of. I don't think I'm on TikTok, though. I should do that. If you're interested in advertising on the show, please contact Believe at Believe.com. All right, let's get started, folks. My guest today is Kyra Knox, a fantastic producer and director out of Philadelphia. We're going to talk to her about her powerful debut documentary, Bad Things Happen in Philadelphia, which is streaming on Fox Soul and Amazon Prime Video. It is executive produced by the one and only NBA Hall of Famer, Allen Iverson. And whether you are from Philly or not, you got to see this movie. But before we get to Kyra, it's time for your reality check. Anybody who likes reality TV shows or who works in reality TV needs to read this article in The Hollywood Reporter. It came out on December 27th. I don't know how I missed it the first time. I just read it this weekend. It's by my good friend, Tony Ann Lagana. She's a producer in the industry, does a fantastic job. And the title of the article is A Big Year for Labor, But Not for Reality TV Workers. It is all about how field and story producers, I used to be one of those and I'd love to be a field or story producer again. We don't have any union protection. We don't have a union. There's nothing like the WGA or SAG or IATSE for reality TV producers of any kind. And she hits on a lot of the downside of not having that sort of an organization. Now we all kind of cheered for folks in the WGA and SAG-AFTRA this summer, hoping that they would get more money and more protections. And um, I think deep down, we all kind of wish that there was something like that for us, Um, especially now as the industry contracts and there's fewer shows, smaller budgets, and there's uh, longer gaps between your shows many times. And sure, you know, if you are fortunate enough to be working on Survivor or Amazing Race or any of the Housewives shows or The Bachelor or uh, Love is Blind or, you know, a legacy show or a show that's a franchise, if you're fortunate to work on one of those, that's great. And you're probably working pretty much, you know, eight, nine, 10 months, maybe even all year round. And um, that's terrific. But for a lot of folks, it used to be that you'd do a show and then maybe you'd be down for a couple weeks and then you pick up another show. And those gaps in between shows are just getting longer and longer and it's harder and harder to keep that regular schedule, those regular checks coming in. And she kind of hits on a lot of the reasons why that's the case and why not having a union or some sort of organization that represents producers, um, why not having that is really, really affects us. Um, so it's definitely worth a read and I wanted to bring that up and congratulate Tony on writing that. All right, moving on. Let's talk about streaming prices. Eight of the nine major streamers have raised their prices in the last year. I'm sure everybody saw that Prom Video is going to be having ads um, unless you want to pay $3 extra to avoid those ads. So even just right now, when you take a look across the board, Netflix is bumping up their basic tier $2 to 
a month. Um, and they're bumping up their premium tier, $3 to $22.99 a month. Okay. Max is going up to a uh, dollar to $15.99 a month. Peacock's going up $2 to $11.99 a month. Paramount plus $2 to $11.99 a month. Even Apple TV plus Apple. Okay. They're the, like the biggest, you know, company in the world, right? Like, I mean, literally they don't need any more money of ours and they are going from $6.99 a month to $9.99 a month. Disney, three more dollars they want from us, $10.99 to $13.99 and Hulu, $14.99 to $17.99. Again, under the Disney umbrella, man, the question is how much better is streaming from cable? Because we were all angry at the cable companies for charging us so much and now it's like, Paying for streaming is actually more in some cases. The average American is spending $120 still on entertainment over the course of a month. That cable bill that was like $120 and we were all super pissed about, you're still spending that. It's just now you're spending it over all these different streaming services. And that's what you're, why 2024 is going to be the year of the streaming bundle. We're already starting to see it with Charter offering Disney Plus, and we've got Verizon offering a bundle. Um, I think it's Netflix and Max. It's all going to be about the streaming bundle this year because a quarter of users, according to a recent study, have dumped at least three services in the last two years. So people are all, the churn is at a greater rate than it ever has been before. And everybody's trying to figure out how to stop churn, but if you raise the rate and you lower the amount of content, original content that you're putting out, which they all are because they're trying to cut costs, how are you going to avoid churn? And so that's their dilemma there. Got to avoid the churn, want to keep subscribers. Oh, but we don't want to spend money on original content. That's a dilemma that they're all going to have to figure out. All right, moving on to my guest, Kyra Knox. She's an award-winning producer and director. Her debut feature documentary, Bad Things Happen in Philadelphia, is about the impact of gun violence in her city, Philadelphia, and the nonprofits that are working hard to create change and put an end to the tragedies. Kyra is also a 2023 Sundance Producers Lab Intensive Fellow. She's incredibly talented. I really hope you guys enjoy this interview. The film is Bad Things Happen in Philadelphia. I'm honored to speak with Kyra Knox, the director and producer of the film, congratulations on Bad Things Happen in Philadelphia. Thank you, thank you so, so much. It's, it's my passion project, my little passion project that could. This is your first film that you're directing. So probably the easiest thing, let's start with what the film's about. You know, you're taking on a very difficult topic, gun violence in Philadelphia, and you follow several people, both youth and mothers, dealing with a tremendous amount of violence in Philadelphia, and then you had this really cool angle through basketball. I was like, oh, wow, you're going through basketball. And I'm a huge basketball fan. And Alan Iverson, AI, is one of the executive producers. But you're also putting a spotlight on a really great program that's tackling this tough topic. Talk about, one, why you decided to do this. And then, two, how you kind of shaped this story. I decided to do this. Well, first, it was really only supposed to be a short film. And I got inspired to do this because the founder, Gary Mills, is actually my cousin. Our mothers are sisters. 
Yeah, so um, I've watched my cousin's journey with this program that he's been working on since we were fresh out of college. And so that's how I got inspired. And the kids, and I call them kids, but, you know, now they're 21. But I remember, you know, when they were 10 and 11 years old, hanging out at uh, me and Gary's nanny's house, our grandma. So that's what made me get inspired to do this, do this story. And after a few days of filming, I said to my crew, who were my friends, you know, I made a film with my friends, which made this film even more special. Um, I told them, I said, guys, I think we have something really special here. I think this is going to be my first feature. And it just took a life of its own. And when you say Gary, you're referring to Gary Mills, who's the head of a program that is featured in the film, Shoot Basketball is Not People. And Gary's an incredible character in the film, really uh, takes a lot of these young folks under his wing and really cares about them, Keeps tries to keep them out of trouble. So he's your cousin. Was that fun to work with your cousin? Was it tough at times? Like you're, I'm sure the last thing that, that you're used to doing is directing your cousin on camera. Oh man, it was, it was a fun experience, but also because he's my cousin, he could talk back to me. <laughs> um, like, yeah, there's nothing, nothing like family, right? Nothing like working with family. Yes. I mean, even there's in the film, you'll see there are points where we do get like some nice portrait shots of Gary and he didn't understand why we would have to keep doing it over and over and over again. But honestly, it was also um, a very healing moment for me and Gary because I never realized that the reason why he quit basketball was the same reason why I quit arts was because our grandfather, who was president of Concerned Black Men, died of a sudden heart attack. And we both dealt with that sudden passing the same way and didn't realize it until now as adults when I was interviewing him. He also said that because I was his cousin, he was able to open up in a way that he's never opened up before because I was his safe space. I was family. So it was, it was, it was great working with my cousin, Gary. It was so great. All right. So the title bad things happen in Philadelphia stems from a former president Trump quote, right? Talk to me a little bit about that inspiration. I know. Yeah. You know, I, I loved when LeBron James did Shut Up and Dribble. You know, I think that resonated with a lot of folks. What Was that a title that just kind of came to you or was it a discussion amongst uh, some of the your fellow collaborators? Talk about the title. I mean, when that man came to our city and disrespected us, you know, Philly, what we do is we decide to just make things our own. And when I was trying to come up with a title, it just something in me, it just clicked like, Let's call it bad things happen in Philadelphia, but we're also showing all of the good shit that happens in Philadelphia too. Um, I decided to take it as my own. And um, also, I mean, think about the title. It gives a little bit of, you know, what is this about, you know? <laughs> so it's also some strategic thinking as well. And the title has really been working because it automatically grabs people's attention. It definitely does. Yeah, that's it's a great title. Speaking of grabbing people's attention, the first five minutes of the film definitely is like a punch in the gut. There's no sugarcoating what's going on in Philadelphia. You come right out of the gates with some 
news footage and you know surveillance footage of gun violence statistics that will shock you i mean we know violence is in the news all the time but you focus on what's going on in philadelphia talk to me a little bit about that discussion that thought process of hey we got to grab people's attention we got to be honest about what's going on here right off, right out out of, the, out of the gates you know i think it's very important to be honest about what's going on in the city and and you know like i also talk about how beautiful our city is too so it's all about balancing it um another decision that i made if you notice that majority of the footage is in broad daylight and it's in parts where you know you see trees and lawns and everything i made a conscious effort not to focus on the parts where quote unquote are the bad neighborhoods in philadelphia like everyone talks about the kensington's everyone talks about southwest and north philly but People really don't talk about Uptown, whereas West Oak Lane and Mount Airy and Germantown, where these were considered nice neighborhoods, but that was a facade, you know? And I thought that was important for people to know, like, the violence is just not happening also at night. It's happening in broad daylight. This is scary. And I always tell people that I feel as though that I could tell this story because, one, I'm not a transplant. I'm born and raised in Philadelphia. And also, I don't live in the suburbs. I still live in Uptown. I still live in West Germantown. I'm right in the middle of the storm. And I just felt like it was important to really highlight what's really going on in the city. But as you know, like I balance it out too. It's not all violent footage. Yeah, you do a really nice job pivoting then and introducing your characters. You meet three young men uh, who have all seen violence. And then, you you know, you're introducing Gary, who then, you know, you introduce the program and we see the basketball and that shape, uh, how that is shaping their lives and really giving them structure. I think the most powerful characters are the mothers who you introduce. I mean, you can't help but be sympathetic to their plight and the, the, the sons who they've lost and how they're fighting back. And one woman starting Mothers in Charge. And talk to me a little bit about your casting how you find, found these folks to follow why you ch and why you chose these uh, certain individuals. So on Gary's side, with because, you know, I said this was going to originally be a short film. And so I wanted to focus on, you know, my cousin Gary that utilizes his gift of basketball to keep the kids off the street. And I chose Winter, Dave, and Khalil because these are kids that have been with Gary from the very, very beginning. Um, since they were 10, 11. Now I told you like they're like 21. And Gary is still going to their games, still mentoring them, even to this day. Like, for example, Winter and her sister Kelsey, they have a game coming up on Saturday where they're actually going head to head. So that's going to be exciting. But I wanted to show also like Gary doesn't leave these kids' lives. He's in their lives basically forever. Um, but when I decided to turn this into a feature, I said, okay, we're talking about Gary that's dealing with preventative measures, but I need to find an organization that deals with the aftermath. And actually Shine, who's Rashana Greer, that's her nickname is Shine. Rashana Greer that's in the film, she actually introduced me to Mothers in Charge, which is the other nonprofit, which is the group of mothers that deal with the aftermath of losing their children to gun violence. And what I did was I didn't just automatically put a camera in their face. I won. I first met with Dr. Dorothy herself, who's the founder, talked to her about what I was trying to accomplish, 
center my sizzle reel and really had a conversation. And then the next time I still didn't put a camera in their face. I actually went to one of the mothers in charge meetings, you know, just so they can see who I am. So I can learn more about the organization and build that trust with them. Um, and then we just had count countless conversations and it was something about Michelle. Oh man, Michelle, who's in the film, who grabs everyone, her story about her son, Blaine. It was something about her originally being in, from London and her meeting a Philly boy. And that's how she came to Philadelphia. And hearing some parts of her story, I was like, I have to, I have to, I have to put her in front of the camera. I'll say this about Michelle. I was terrified when she saw the film and she made me cry because she said, thank you. You handled my story of my son in such a delicate manner, but also a respectful manner. And also you put a little bit of my humor in there too. And she was very grateful. So, and then officer Steve, that's in the film. I, he was actually uh Gary and I POW officer. He was our POW officer when we were kids. And one of the main reasons why I chose Officer Steve is one, he was a huge influence in Gary's and I lives and the kids in West Oak Lane lives. But also I wanted to show that all white cops aren't bad. There are good white cops out there, you know? And Officer Steve is an amazing, amazing pillar in our community. And people still talk about Officer Steve to this day. And he actually remembered me and Gary, when I wrote him a letter. I, I was in Atlanta shooting at a pal um, last year and I, it's police athletic league, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it was, it was incredible. You know, I, I had never heard of pal before until I shot this project with the Harlem, it was with the Harlem Globetrotters. It was really, you know, it really kind of struck me. He was, you know, your officer Steve got really emotional. Talk to me a little bit about how invested he was in the community and how important that is for police officers like him to get involved in the community? Oh man, Officer Steve really cared about us. He really, really cared about us. In the film, one of the things that he said was, okay, they assigned me to West Oak Lane. How is this gonna work? I'm a white man in a black community and I'm a cop. But it's what he says afterwards. He says, I gave them respect and then they gave me respect back. So he didn't come into our community just trying to police us. He got to know who we were as human beings. And at that POW Center, I went to school at that POW Center. I wasn't even like formally signed up for POW, but Officer Steve let me come down there every single day and be a part of the program. And that's the thing, like he never turned a kid away. And I think that's what's important, never turning these kids away. And, you know, I'm not saying he wasn't our friend. He mentored us, but he also provided us with a safe space. He never um, talked down on us. He talked to us like we were basically as human beings. Yeah, that that story when he got emotional over Don, um, I didn't even know. Um, I didn't even know that he was going to talk about that. I didn't even know that he was part of that, um, that kids came to him. How that came out was that I was talking to him about my grandma, my nanny's house, 
who's lived there since even my mom was a kid. I mean, that's the house my mother grew up in. And my mom, my nanny and her neighbor was out on the porch, 9 a.m., having a cup of coffee, and a car drives down in broad daylight and shoots up a house three doors away from my grandma, you know, and West Oak Lane. And I started talking about that. And at this point, the camera's still rolling, but we're just having a conversation. And then that's when he says, hey, Gary, remember that kid named Don? And then he starts opening up about that. And me and Gary was just like, wow. You know, we didn't realize that Don's death still impacted Officer Steve that way. And it goes to show how much he really cared about us kids in the community. There's been plenty of, um, gu you know, gun rights, gun control documentaries done. I think what you did is you put a face a personal touch on violence and, you know, and, and making it about one community, you know, about Philadelphia. Did you have in your mind, like, Oh, I want to talk about violence or guns or anything. Or were you like, I want to talk about what's happening in my city and it's not about guns or, or, or Oh, the mayor and crime and politics. What, you know, or did you have in mind like, Oh, Maybe people are going to think about that. You know, like, did, did that cross your mind at all as a filmmaker? I kept going back and forth with, do I involve politics in this? Kept going. And after a while, and I spoke to my editor, Kevin, about this. And after a while, we thought about it. And we said, you know what? If we include politics in this, you lose half your audience. You know, and we decided to keep this a documentary about stories and how this is impacting people. And we figured, you know, if we're gonna talk about guns, we'll just show the archival footage and that's it, you know? But we decided to fully keep out politics, period. And just so people could just listen to the stories. And I think also one of the things that was important because I know the mothers, their stories was important, but I thought it was also important to highlight, you know, Winter, Khalil and Dave because even though when I interviewed them, they were 19, you know, and it's like, how are these young kids dealing with the gun violence, not on top of gun violence, but also social media, mental health, all of these type of things. I We didn't have social media when I was growing up. We were playing outside, you know, like, so I can't even imagine growing up with social media. Like, that's another layer of pressure and then to see how for example david king how that one year alone that i interviewed he lost five friends including his cousin to gun violence but yet you still see this kid also smiling and laughing like it's just i just thought it was so important so people to just hear these individual stories and one of the things that happened as we were touring through the festival circuit during q a's there were so many people that said, I'm not from Philadelphia, but this resonates with me from my city. So even though it's a film about Philadelphia, this is happening all over our country, you know? And so I wanted this to not inspire change, not only in Philadelphia, but inspire change in our country. And I'm proud to say that I've been achieving that. I know I'm going off on something else, but really quick, how I'm achieving that is I didn't come into this for money grab. This just started out as a passion project and to inspire people to donate to these smaller nonprofits that are boots on the ground, every day doing the work. And when we were in the Bay Area, after the Q&A, 
there was an anonymous donation of $10,000 to my cousin Gary's organization, True Bass. Well, it's not people. Um, there was another massive donation from several people in Philadelphia to Mothers in Charge and True Bass. Well, it's not people. In Miami, people donated. In New York, people donated. In LA, people donated to these smaller nonprofit organizations. So we've been inspiring change. And I don't think that would have happened as well if politics was in it. I agree 100%. And honestly, that kind of nonprofit aspect was brilliant. And, you know, having Gary be such a big part of it, you know, your cousin, I think, you know, it makes all the difference in the world. And that, I mean, look, as a filmmaker, you know, telling a tough story like that, there's nothing more that you could hope for than to change people's minds or inspire them to give back. And yeah, it doesn't, you know, it is about Philadelphia, but you're right. It doesn't necessarily feel like I have to be from Philadelphia to care. Right. You know, I watched it. I, I'm originally from Ohio. I live in Los Angeles, but I completely, you know, I completely cared. I was engrossed mm -hmm. in, in the film. As you're making this, as you're going along in the film, it's a very stylish film. It's gritty, but the interviews are very stylish. You didn't, you know, you, you could have just kind of gone in and shot very, you know, very verite, very verite. Um, but you, you made it stylish. Talk to me a little bit about the style, how you thought about shooting this, the, you know, the, you used a lot of slow-mo, the transitions in post, but were very thoughtful. Tell me a little bit about the style. So I am, um, I do a lot of commercial work, but also I have to do a lot of corporate work because you got to pay your bills. <laughs> Those corporate projects, they pay our bills. <laughs> oh, I know. I do reality television. So trust me, I know. Oh. <laughs> um, so with this, I wanted to, this was my first time that I was able to do a project like this and I didn't have a client breathing down my back. Um, and I am a very moody director. I like to break the rules. Um, I'm, I, I, I do the clean interview setup because that's what I'm paid to do. <laughs> but I, I just love it when documentaries, when it's visually interesting as well. Um, because I want to keep my audience captivated. And one of my favorite interview setups is actually Winters, where you see like her trophies um, in the shot and it's like profile and you got the, I just love like those dirty, interesting shots. And I just wanted to be anti-corporate, anti-commercial, Philly, we're gritty. That's who we are. And I just wanted to show that. And I feel as though that my city, the inspiration from my city, our look and our personality, I feel like it really came through in those shots. Yeah, you had the low angle interview with Gary that was yeah. really interesting. You used some like empty kind of beat up apart like houses or buildings that I thought oh, was really. Oh, I'll tell you the story behind that. Yeah, because I thought that was really, because it's like what you said is like, when you do interview, you know, I, I literally, I was just shooting interviews for a documentary yesterday and I was, you know, I mean, you know, and you're doing a one day shoot and you, and your local crews, you're having this debate with your, with the camera operator, you know, and, but, um, what I thought when I noticed the empty house, it was a thoughtful decision and it was, you know, I noticed the background, which is kind of rare. You generally focus right on the person, but I noticed that you made a choice. So yeah, go ahead. Tell me about that. So one, another reason why our shot, when we started this film, I didn't have money. I had not a cent to my name and we didn't have a lot of gear and we didn't have a lot of lighting equipment. 
So we're also being creative with what we have, you know, using a lot of natural light and you know what we, we could, but the, where Khalil's mother, uh, Fatima and, um, um, and Khalil, you see they're in this empty shop, right? And the beauty about documentaries, you never know where the story was, is going to go. What's not included in it and reason why I chose that spot, that was actually the last day that Khalil's mother was going to be in her shop. I was, I was trying to decide if I was going to touch on gentrification in our neighborhood or not. And I decided not to, but she had owned that shop for years since Khalil was a young kid. She came from Africa, so she's an immigrant. Khalil, she's had that shop, I think, since Khalil was like seven or eight. And when I interviewed Khalil, he was 19. And what happened is, is that the landlord started raising a rent, raising a rent, raising a rent, to the point that he raised the rent so high that she couldn't sustain paying the rent while also, you know, maintaining her household. So we actually filmed her on her last day. I have footage of her closing her shop for the last time and everything. And that's why. So if you look at the shot again, you'll see in the background Amy's uh, braiding shop. And that was the sign that used to be on the front of her, her shop. And that's why the lighting is like that, because when we went in there, we realized that the electric company had already turned out majority of the lights. So we didn't have a lot to work with. So we just had to play around with natural light as best as we could. And we only had one big light and it was like coming all the way from the back. So it couldn't even really fully reach her. And then we used haze to just the haze machine to really like make it even more moodier. So, yeah. So you mentioned this started out, you've said passion project multiple times and um, you said you didn't have a lot of money when you started. Can no. you tell me a little bit about the fundraising process, how you got, obviously you got Alan Iverson on board, so he was excited and I'm sure that was no easy task. How were you able to kind of keep pushing forward and make this, uh, get this project across the finish line? You know, I, I, the reason why I always tell people I have no money in the beginning, because I think it's important for filmmakers to know that you don't have to start out with a big, massive budget. You know, if you have a film squad, that's why I call my film community here in Philly. I have my film squad. And, you know, if you talk to your squad or your film community, you'll realize that people really want to do something meaningful because we do a lot of like commercial work. We do a lot of corporate work where you know, you're not doing anything impactful. And so when I came up with the idea, I called my friends that work professionally. I said, guys, I don't have money, but I have this idea. Do you want to do this short film with me? And they, without hesitation, let's go. Let's do it, Kyra. And so I started making this film with my friends, right? But then also, I'm also not in the business of exploiting my friends. And when I realized that, you know, I wanted to make this into a feature. I said, okay, I'm gonna turn into a, I'm gonna make a sizzle. And actually Hector, who's one of the deep, the DPs on the project, him and his sister came together, charged me only 500 bucks and put together a three minute sizzle because they believed in what I was doing. And then I hit up one of my sound mixers. I was like, hey, I don't have a lot of money. I only have $300. Can you just mix this for me? 
And he, and he watched it and he said, no, I'm actually going to introduce you to my friend who's a sound designer, Disney sound designer. I'm giving you $700. I'm going to introduce him because Disney sound design. And so another friend donated money, you know? And so I sent this sizzle first to my two film sisters, Shaquayla and Edith, that work in the industry. And I said, guys, I'm going to crowdsource. And they both called me immediately and say, this trailer sizzle looks like something that could be on a major streaming platform. Let's see what we can do first before you crowdsource. And actually, Edith sent my sizzle to my now executive producer, Mark Milms, who reached out to me, said, hey, can you jump on a quick Zoom? I jump on a Zoom with this man I don't know. And he's like, please do not crowdsource. I will find you the funding. I will find you the funding. And I took a leap of faith. I put my trust in him. And he took out $20,000 from his own savings account to put towards my project. Iverson got involved because Mark Mims is from Virginia. He knows some of Iverson's people. He sent it to one of Iverson's friends who then showed it to Iverson. Next thing I know, Mark calls me and he's still outside. It's like in the winter of 2022. He calls me in the winter time and he says to me, no, it was 2021. I'm sorry, it was 2021. He says to me, Kyra, I'm sitting here. I got trash juice coming down my leg because Iverson just called me and he says that he wants to be an executive producer on the project. I said, wait, 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 what? He said, yes. I was taking out the trash. My friend Nico called me and said, hey, Iverson is here right now. Talk to him about the project. Mark only had two minutes. Talk to Iverson about the project. And Iverson, he gave us his name. Um, he didn't financially contribute, but he gave us his name, which opened up so many doors for us. And um, with that $20,000 and with the money I saved, my friends that were in production, they still would not take their full rates. They donated their gear to me. They kept on saying, put the money in post, put the money in post. And then my editor, Kevin, charged me 75% less than what he would have charged. So it really was a film made with my friends where everyone either gave me super, super low rates or they donated their gear or donated their time. And I'm so grateful for my friends. You just gave hope to a lot of filmmakers. <laughs> That's a tremendous success story. It is. I love that. Yeah. I mean, look, you got, it's like pushing a boulder up a hill, every documentary, right? Mm -hmm. And the fact that you actually got the boulder up the hill is incredible. And you, you know, I commend you for it. Yeah. That's, that's phenomenal. When I got, so when you find out that Alan Iverson, one of the greatest basketball players ever is going to be an executive producer on your film, what's the first thing that goes through your mind? You're a lion. <laughs> I was like, Mark, you're lying. Shut up. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, I did not believe it. Yeah. Until a year later, the article came out on Deadline. In my mind, even though I was working with the team and stuff, it didn't become a reality until it was um, out on deadline. And then I was like, oh, it's real. Cause then I could, cause I had to keep the secret for a whole year. 
And so then it became real because then I'm posted it and everybody's like, wait, what? You know, so yeah, it still feels surreal. I mean, this is my directorial debut. This is my first feature. Like what a hell of a run. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah, it's a great run. Yeah. All right. I, uh, before you go, I want to ask you, you, you had another uh, great little uh, achievement here. You were recently named to the third edition of the Sundance Institute Producers Intensive uh, for a project called Southside Girls. So this is super cool. And congratulations on that. I'm not super familiar with what that is. Tell me a little bit about what this is and what kind of opportunities this is going to provide for you. Oh man, first, still can't believe that I got into a Sundance fellowship. And fun fact, this is the first fellowship I've ever applied to. So I said, wow, (laughs) what a home run. (laughs) The funny thing is, is that I wasn't even going to submit. I have very bad imposter syndrome. And I mentioned earlier about my film sisters, Edith and Shaquayla. Edith actually is this phenomenal writer. Um, And... This, her script, Southside Girls, has gotten her into Gotham Labs, has gotten her to the um, writer's program for Paramount. Now she's in the writer's room. I can't say what the show is, but I can't wait until she can finally announce it. But Southside, and and Southside Southside Girls has always been her baby. People have wanted to buy this script and everything, but they would never let her direct it. So she's never, she, she would never give it up. And so I'm coming from the documentary world, right? I've never done a narrative feature. I've only done maybe like one narrative short film. And so I didn't wait. I waited until two weeks before that application was due to ask, to get the courage to ask my own best friend if I could be her producer for this and submit it. And she naturally yelled at me. Because she's like, why did you wait so long? Because mind you, the application was out three months prior and I waited two weeks before. And so <laughs> and so, her and I, she helped me with my application because she's a phenomenal writer. And that's why I tell people about your community. You Utilize your community. If you're a crappy writer, if you have an a, amazing friend that's an amazing writer, ask them to help you because that's what I did. And um, she helped me put, because I had all the right ideas. And she helped me put it together. And so we were just like, all right, we submitted. Nothing's going to happen with this. And mind you, I did. I waited until the last day that the application was due while I was on Amtrak, headed to New York for a scout. I was like, you know what? Screw my imposter syndrome. I'm going to do this. And I submitted that day. And we're just like, all right, nothing's going to happen. And then two months later, we make it to the next round. And we're just like, Wait, okay. And so I submitted Bad Things Happen Philadelphia because I produced it. She submitted her work. And we're just like, all right, we can always say we were a semi-finalist. And then a month later happens, wait, we're finalists? And we're just like, okay. So I was like, we could just say we're finalists. And I interviewed and everything. And I was sweating. I was flustered. And to find out that I got to Sundance, that was amazing. And I cried. And Southside Girls is about two Puerto Rican girls living in Wisconsin. <laughs> Navigating. Wow, that, that's a departure. <laughs> that is definitely, you have bad things happen in Philadelphia and now you're, yeah, this is, this is different. You got range, Kyra, you got range. 
I can't read. And I, I said to you, if I said Wisconsin, she was like, Kyra, this is my, I grew up in Wisconsin and there's a big Puerto Rican community. But yeah, after bad things happen, filled up, I need to do something light, something fun. Um, so yeah, so I, the Sundance program has been amazing. I mean, they have put us in class for entertainment law. Um, I learned how to how to correctly pitch. I've I've been meeting with big execs, like all types of things. If anytime I have a question, I can reach out to my advisor. Like is the program has been amazing and I'm in this program for a whole year, but they don't abandon you. They don't abandon you. So after the year is over, if you still want to send them selects, if you still want to send them, if you still have questions, your door is always open to them. So it's been an amazing journey. And I just started a month ago, my Sundance Fellowship. Last thing, Bad Things in Philadelphia is on Fox Soul. So how did that happen? Uh, yeah, this has this is exciting. It is exciting. I mean, distribution is 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 tricky. And me and Mark, man, it, it was a wild, wild ride. And that's a long conversation for a whole nother day. But the reason why we chose Fox Soul is because of how welcoming they were to us and how they really wanted to amplify um, the message because Fox Soul is a black network under the Fox network. And they are like doing some really big things and they're growing. And we wanted to be part of a network that is growing because we knew that they would give us their all. And they already are. They have an Instagram takeover for me to do this weekend. They have been promoting the hell out of this film. They're about to put us on some of their own TV shows. So that's why we chose them. But we also, we have a non-exclusive agreement. And so we're also on Amazon Prime. Amazon Prime has accepted us as well. Congratulations, Thank Kyra. You. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I always tell people, people say like, wow, this project really took off um, in such a big way. And I, I honestly think it's, I think it's because, you know, my heart was in a genuine place from the very beginning. I didn't exploit, I didn't exploit anyone's stories. There, I always kept it open to anyone that was part of it that, hey, if you wanna call me, it could be a week, two weeks, months later, and you decide you don't want something in there, I will take it out immediately. And I have done that. There are things in there that I have taken out, or there are things that people have opened up and said to me that it was, it, I hate trauma porn, and I just felt like it would it would add to the story, but not in a way that I felt was beneficial. And there were things I didn't want people to relive. So I never I never exploited my subjects. And I also made sure, as you can see at the end of the credits, I put a call to action challenging people to donate to the nonprofits. David King, I found out that he was aspiring artist. We have a full soundtrack that's coming out. And David King is going to be on the soundtrack. And Jill Scott and Bean is going to be on this soundtrack as well. But it's like, it's things like that, that I made sure that everyone that was part of this project, I also, I made sure that they were taken care of, you know, they were never forgot. It's not like I took money and ran, you know, me and Mark, we have not made not one cent from this yet, you know, nothing. We have been more concerned about the nonprofits and the kids that have been featured. Um, and it's... Sorry. It's also because 
this is my life. Like earlier this year, me and Gary, we lost our own cousin to gun violence. So that's why when I tell people, like, I'm not in it for, I, I didn't expect any of this. I didn't expect to be in articles and win awards. I just wanted to make a project to inspire change in my city. And um, I'm very proud of what we did. Sorry, got emotional. No. It, Frankie I mean, was 37. So, I, well, yeah. I, I, my condolences, and I'm sorry for your loss. I, the, the fact that you are inspiring change. And I mean, that that is a testament to uh, your cousin, mm -hmm. you know, to to your family. You've done your city proud. You've done your family proud, and you know that's the most that any person and any filmmaker could ever hope for. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you said you haven't made a cent, but you've made a dent in one of the biggest problems that our country faces, and you did it without politics, and you did it without. Uh, you did it with your friends, which is pretty incredible. And so you have a lot to be proud of. And that was what, that, that is what was important to me, not the money. Yeah. So, I mean, and look, you, you inspire me, you know, as somebody who's trying to push a boulder <laughs> up a hill. And I think, um, I think you're going to continue to inspire a lot of other folks because, um, you know, it's, it is a tough, tough time out there. And this is a, you know, gun violence and violence in general is, is something that a lot of folks deal with. And I think you tell a story that is inspiring and um, the folks who you featured are inspiring. And so, you know, yeah, I, I give you all the kudos that I can. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right, folks. So the, the film is Bad Things Happen in Philadelphia. You can watch it on Fox Soul and Amazon Prime. Kyra Knox, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks again to Kyra Knox for that. And make sure everybody should see Bad Things Happen in Philadelphia on either Fox Soul or Amazon Prime Video. Now, before I go, I want to recommend two movies. I went and saw Poor Things with Emma Stone and Mark Ruffalo, Willem Dafoe. This is one of the weirdest movies I've ever seen, but it is great. Emma Stone deserves every award under the sun this season. It's like a female Frankenstein type movie that's the that's the kind of basis of the story and she is incredible hilarious I, I mean just the physicality of the role she deserves every award for that but then she just dives right into it in every way shape or form and the script is so unique and fresh I really enjoyed that the other one that I really liked is The Holdovers, and um, that's with Paul Giamatti, and it's an Alexander Payne movie, and I, I'm a big Alexander Payne fan. I loved Sideways and The Descendants, and so this one is, is um, much more uh, heartfelt and very much in, in the same vein as Sideways and The Descendants, and Paul Giamatti has like a, um, you know, plays a guy with like a, a lazy eye or a fake eye in this, and as always, Paul Giamatti kills it, and it's just a terrific kind of old school throwback movie. Um, I think both these are worth a watch. Poor Things is in theaters. The Holdovers is on Peacock. Both worth your time. And that is going to do it for another episode of No Script, No Problem. For everybody listening, please subscribe, download, and rate the show with five stars. It is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Amazon Podcasts, Audible, 
and tune in. You can also find it on Believe.com and at Believe Podcast. Follow me on X, Post News, Instagram, Threads, pretty much anywhere on social media. You can email any questions you have to no script, no problem podcast at gmail.com. If you're interested in advertising on the show, please contact Believe at Believe.com. Thanks for listening, everybody. Until next time, I'm Steve Berkowitz for No Script, No Problem. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.